Amen. All right, we are in week three of a sermon series called Jesus First. We're studying together through the book of Hebrews. Uh, and since it's titled Jesus First, I want to start with some of the words of Jesus. Except, not his words. Uh, I'm going to read to you a version, we can call it a version, of the Lord's Prayer. You might remember uh, almost four years ago now, I preached a sermon series called Our Father, uh, preached through the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things I did in the sermon series is I said, hey, why don't you go ahead and write a, a translation or maybe a paraphrase or an adaptation of the Lord's Prayer and send it to me? Because different people can resonate with different parts of the prayer. And two little boys, two little three-and-a-half-year-old boys wrote their own adaptation. Let's call it an adaptation of the Lord's Prayer, and I'd like to read it to you now. Here we go. The Lord's Prayer according to Jason and Luke. Our Father, who are in heaven, the name. This part's interesting. My kingdom come, my will be done. Woo! Watch out. On earth, burp, from drinking too much milk. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. They stick the landing. They nailed it at the end. Now, I've been thinking about this, about this prayer. I like this prayer. Um, but here's what I was thinking. There's, there's two types of people in the world. You might have met each of these types of people. There's one type of person. If somebody comes to mind, don't say their name right now. Say their name later in the privacy of your home. There's a type of person who it just seems they want to find fault in everything. It seems like no matter how good the meal is, they have to critique it somehow. No matter how great the literature is, they're, they're grumpy and grouchy and discontent about something. There's, there's people who even when they read this wonderful prayer adaptation by two young boys, they might go, ah, it's irreverent of you to read such a prayer in a church. Maybe you've met people like this. And then there's other people who just seem to have this humble and simple gratitude and appreciation. Maybe they're the greatest chef the world has ever known, yet they're able to enjoy and, and give praise to the simplest of meals. It, it seems like no matter what is before them, they can find gratitude and appreciation and, and give some praise for anything. It's like, it's like we live in a world and we're all looking at the same world, right? We're all looking at the same things, but it seems like we see completely differently and we respond completely differently. Some people able to find thanks and praise for many things, and some people seeming completely unable to find gratitude anywhere. C.S. Lewis reflects on it this way. He says, praise seems to be inner health made audible. It reveals what's already inside of our hearts. I use that example uh, because I want to set up a question that I think is sort of uh, my subtitle for the sermon this morning. We're going to preach through Hebrews chapter 3. Once again, our third week, preaching through chapter 3. The, the, the integration is wonderful, but it's not going to last much longer. 
Um, here's my question to guide the sermon. What are you looking at? I guess I could also say it. What are you seeing? We all have a choice as to where we're going to fix the attention of our eyes in our days. And the way we choose to look at the world around us can have a great impact on the way we respond to the world around us. So I'm going to bring this question up a couple times. What are you looking at? We'll read through all of chapter 3, but we're going to do it in two parts. If you look in your Bibles, chapter 3 might very well have two different headings. Um, the headings in my Bible were part 1, Jesus greater than Moses, and part 2, warning against unbelief. Like I said last week, there's four different warnings that kind of break up the whole book into its main parts. So this is the second of the four warnings um, turn with me now, follow along while I read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where the author makes the argument that Jesus is greater than Moses. Here we go. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house is worthy of greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. My other thought on what I could have titled this sermon was, You Are a House, but I didn't want to go with that one. So uh, that's not the title. Uh, no, you can't give away the next slide yet. Go back to the, we'll get there in a second. We'll get to Philo in just a second. Okay, so if you remember, the, the book opened with this statement, Jesus is greater than even the angels. And it's like, whoa, okay, that's a big deal because angels... Like, for as much as I don't understand about angels, I understand pretty great. So if Jesus is greater than angels, that's pretty great. And then chapters 1 and 2 talked about how humans were made lower than the angels. So if Jesus is greater than the angels, and humans are lower than the angels, and Moses is a human, why now do we need to talk about how Jesus is greater than Moses? Like, didn't we already cover that with the angels thing? Well, it turns out, as you recall, the author is writing to a group of Jewish Jesus followers. And if you dig around into a little bit of ancient Jewish writing about Moses, it turns out maybe they didn't think Moses was just a human. Maybe they thought Moses was even greater than that. And I can't pass up a chance to quote to you some ancient Jewish authors. So let me give you just a taste of what the first congregation reading this letter might have been taught in their life 
about just how great Moses is. First, a guy named Philo, who lived and wrote about the same time as Jesus, and he wrote a book called On the Life of Moses. And here's one of the things Philo says. Moses was thought worthy of the greatest honor in the world to be instructed by God. It's like, hey, remember Moses standing on Mount Sinai and God speaks directly to him? Yeah, he was the only one. No one else got that kind of honor. So like, this is just top of the game right here. Okay, okay, I get it. But that still puts Moses like top of the human ladder, but still bottom of the angel ladder, right? Like, uh, I don't know. I was reading one scholar who said, it's hard to exaggerate how high of an esteem the ancient Jewish people gave to Moses. And here's the second example. It's by an author named Eusebius. If anybody's thinking about having any kids, looking for name ideas, Eusebius. Now, Eusebius is quoting a much older Jewish poem, and I could not for the life of me find the original. So I have to say that I'm quoting Eusebius, who's quoting the older poem, but this poem is a fictitious story about the life of Moses. And there's a scene where Moses, in the story, it's fiction, where, where Moses is describing what he sees on Mount Sinai, okay? And so, so this is a Jewish story about Moses. I'm not saying this is a true story, but I am saying this will give you a picture of just how revered Moses was. Um, and warning, it's kind of old Englishy language, so just, just hang with me on that. So here's a poem. These are the words of Moses describing a vision he had. <laughs> Methought. It's great. Upon Mount Sinai's brow I saw a mighty throne that reached to heaven's high vault, whereon there sat a man of noblest mean. I don't know what that word means. <laughs> Wearing a royal crown, whose left hand held a mighty scepter. Okay, pause. So this is an image. Moses sees God seated on God's throne on top of Mount Sinai holding a scepter, right? That's what Moses sees, is God sitting on God's throne on Mount Sinai. And his right hand to me made a sign. And I stood forth before the throne. He gave me the scepter. And he gave me the crown and bade me to sit upon the royal throne from which himself removed. So this is saying that Moses was on Mount Sinai and God's like, hey Moses, you can sit on my throne. Now again, it's hard to say how many people in ancient first century Judaism or anywhere in Judaism thought that Moses was basically equal to God. It's hard to say that. But this was one depiction of Moses. So it's safe to say, however, however great we thought Moses was, it's clear that they thought he was even greater. And that's the reason the author of Hebrews starts with, Jesus is greater than the angels. But in the author's mind, Jesus being greater than Moses is actually the crescendo. That's an even bigger statement. And it's a statement that's 
kind of echoing something that was already said, which means I think we need to pause again and consider the implication for our lives. If the author of Hebrews is going out of their way to say, hey, I don't care how important you think anything is, Jesus is more important, it forces us to once again pause and say, who do you revere? Who are the voices? Who are the authors? Who are the social or political commentators? Who are the social media influencers? Who are the people in your life that you look at and you go, oh my gosh, their word, their thinking, their teaching is so valuable, so good, so important. The author of Hebrews wants to warn us that no matter how faithfully we're following Christ, we're always at risk of taking somebody, and maybe somebody whose message is good, right, and true, but taking somebody who should be pointing us towards Christ and instead putting them in front of Christ. I think the summary of the first part of chapter 3 is this question, are we letting the good influences around us point us even more towards Christ? Or are we at risk of letting them distract us from Christ? I don't know who that might be or what that might look like in your life, but I know the author of Hebrews considers it a serious risk for his first audience, so we should consider it a potential risk in our lives as well. And the bookends to verses 1 through 6 were this, uh, 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 this, this one core thought to resist letting any voice replace the voice of Christ. The core thought is to fix our thoughts on Jesus and hold firmly to our confidence and hope. What do you do in a world filled with noisy voices? You fix your thoughts on Jesus. You get quiet on a daily basis. You try to push out the distracting noise so that you can say, God, help me hear your voice. And that next thought, to hold firmly to our confidence and hope, leads right into the second part, which is a warning against unbelief. This first congregation was in a period of great difficulty, and many of them were considering abandoning their faith in Christ because of the difficulty they were facing in life. So let's read now Hebrews 3, verses 7 through the end of the chapter. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did 
in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Okay, I want to talk about three things in this chunk, this warning against unbelief. I want to talk about hearing, explore unbelief, and what I think is the heart of the whole passage, encouragement. So first of all, hearing. Let me just repeat. The author of Hebrews is repeating himself. He said it time and time and time again. We worship a God who speaks. The question is, are you listening? And now in chapter 3, he kind of takes it as an assumption. He assumes you are listening and hearing what he says, but he says, you know what? Maybe you've had a child who you said, hey, empty the dishwasher. And the child said, no, I'm not going to empty the dishwasher. I'm going to go punch my brother instead. That child has a hardened heart. They heard you, but just because they heard you didn't mean they responded in the way you're calling them to respond. And the author's like, okay, okay, you know God speaks, but when you listen, you need to hear and respond with a yes. So, are we going to be hearing people? That's a theme that keeps coming over and over. Are we going to hear God's voice first ahead of every voice in our life, or are we going to let other voices creep in front of it? And the reason this matters so much, and the reason the author's warning it, is kind of the heart of this whole chapter. A warning against unbelief. And we get three words or three images all saying the exact same thing. There's a warning against unbelief. There's the image of a hardened heart. And then there's an action of turning away. The child looks at the parent. Not my child, obviously, but maybe you've met a child and hears the parent say, I need you to empty the dishwasher. But they don't believe that the parent really means what's being said. And so their heart is hardened and they think to themselves, I will not. But then that hard heart is manifest when they turn away. And they pick up the toy that they will now use as a weapon to assault some other child in the household, hypothetically. <laughs> <laughs> Too many stories coming to mind. I want to tell you a story about hard hearts and unbelief. Um, you gotta, in order for this story to really sink in, you've got to really get into your imagination and try to like picture in your mind and feel in your heart and experience the weight on your shoulders of what it would have been like for these people at this time. Scene one. It's been 400 years that the Israelite people have been enslaved in Egypt. And you're now one of the Israelites living in slavery where generation after generation after generation, all your family and all your people has known is this oppressed life. Like it's, it's hard to comprehend what that would have been like, but God's people were there. And then God's people cried out, and God heard their cry and sent Moses to go and free them. Because God always hears the cry of oppressed people, and God always sends his people to respond to that cry. And with miraculous deeds and a demonstration of God's great power, God frees his people from slavery. 
Scene two. You are now one of the Israelites who after 400, almost 430 years of slavery, you are now the first of your people to taste freedom. You came out of Egypt. You ran into some trouble at the Red Sea, but God delivered you again. You got a little hungry in the wilderness, but God fed you again. And, and you're living as a free nation. Wow! Like, like just try to, I don't, I don't know how to, how to get that feeling of that, but if you're going to read Scripture faithfully, you have to let your imagination help you picture and feel and get the tingles that would happen if you're in this freedom. So, some numbers. 400 plus years of slavery. And then four months later. Now, maybe math isn't your strong suit, so let me just say 400 is more than... 400 years is more than four months by a lot, okay? Four months later, you're in the desert, and you don't have any water, and you're thirsty. And because you're thirsty, you get what parents of toddlers might call hangry, except it's thirst, so maybe it's Thurngry. It doesn't have the same, it doesn't have the same ring to it, right? I mean, you know what hangry is like, right? Like, like my kids are playing and they're playing very nicely. Everybody seems to be happy. And then suddenly it's just like, bam, a magic wand is waved and they stand up and they start violently assaulting anybody with an arm's reach. And you're like, child, don't you like playing happily with your friends or siblings instead of fighting? But reasoning doesn't seem to work. So you scream to your spouse, get a sandwich! Bring me an Uncrustable from the fridge! Right! Do you guys, you might not know what Uncrustables are. If you don't, it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, pre-made, with no crust. And yet my children still pull off the non-crust crust. <laughs> we already took the crust off for you! That has nothing to do with the story. <laughs> but you know hangry, right? You've seen hangry in your kids and grandkids, and the Israelites are hangry because they don't have any water, and they start fighting with one another. And they're whining. They're like, Moses, they took two drinks of water, but we're on a one drink per person rationing system, Moses. You got to come and do some. Moses, we're thirsty. Moses... We should go back to Egypt. It was better in Egypt. And other people are like, are you kidding me? They were murdering us in Egypt. Yeah, but I didn't have to be thirsty in Egypt. At least I had water. And Moses goes, Daddy needs a little time to himself right now. I'm going to go in the garage for just a minute. Just going to go in the garage. And, and Moses talks to God and says, and this is a direct quotation, all the other stuff, you got to look in between the lines of scripture to get that other stuff, but it's there in between the lines. But Moses says, what am I to do with these people? I tell this story because if you were listening Actually, no, i got to finish the story. And God says, okay, take a stick, hit the rock. Moses hits the rock. 
and water starts pouring out, and we get the first bottled spring water company that history's ever known, and they, they drink, and they're all happy. It's like, it's like God frees you from 400 years of slavery, and he did it like double in the most miraculous and powerful way, and then four months later, you get thirsty, and you're like, clearly this is bigger than God can handle, so we're just going to start fighting with one another and doubting God. I tell you that story because if you were paying attention the first week, I said every time when you're reading scripture, there's indented texts, right? You know that's a quotation. Chapter 3 starts with a long quotation, which if you look at the tiny little superscript letter, will send you to Psalm 95. And if you read Psalm 95 in the book of Psalms, there's a line in there where it says, when Israel rebelled at Massah and Meribah. I, I might have remembered those wrong, but go look it up. And you look in Hebrews and you say, it doesn't say Massah and Meribah. It says, when you tried and tested God. But tried and tested is just a translation of Massah and Meribah. So you go, well, what's that about? Oh, look, another tiny little superscript letter. It's going to send me back to Exodus 17, which tells the story of the Israelites, four months into their freedom, getting thirsty and fighting with one another and yelling at Moses and testing God because they didn't trust him anymore. The reason hearing matters so much and the reason hearing is the starting point before a warning against unbelief is because we're going to have problems in our life as well. And even if we know and believe and we've seen God work in a faithful way, we are at risk just like Israel when difficulty comes of thinking we can fight with one another until we find the solution instead of faithfully looking to our God to provide what we need. So here's the first moral of the story from the author of Hebrews. Don't try to solve your problems by fighting over them. Instead, trust in God's provision even when you can't see his plan. I think the biggest cause for our unbelief and our wavering faith and our turning to fighting with one another is not because we don't think God could solve this, but because we can't see how God will solve this. And when we can't see, that overrides what we know God could do. It's all a question of how long we can go blindfolded. I put this quote in my all church email, but I think it bears repeating. Um, it's a definition of faith by an author, Ruth Haley Barton, uh, and she basically says faith is this deep down soul level yes to God. She says faith is saying yes. She says Yes to our need, and yes to our desperation. Yeah, that's real. And then yes to God's invitation and the rightness of it. Before we even know how we're going to make it real in our own lives. This is the very definition of faith. To say yes when we have no idea how it's all going to work out. But we know it's what we need to do. So the Israelites ran into some difficulty. And instead of saying yes to faith in God and saying, God, we saw you deliver us miraculously. We, you, we know you're going to provide again. They fought with one another. 
The first audience of the letter of Hebrews, they um, were experiencing some difficulty in their own lives. They were experiencing uh, loss of home, some of them imprisonment, loss of social status and social influence. Their businesses were being boycotted because of their Christian faith. And some of them, seeing the difficulty, were thinking, you know what, we're just going to leave the faith. Even though they were of the generation who either had seen Christ's death and resurrection personally or still knew somebody who had seen it directly. Like they were part of that first generation or really close to it. And they still, having seen God's mighty power, lost faith when the going got tough. So the warning is against unbelief, against a hardened heart and turning away. So I then ask myself, What's the antidote? What do we need to do to resist hard hearts? And the author gives an answer that that I find surprising because when I think of the word, I don't think of it as strong of a word as the author seems to think of it. What's the antidote to hardened hearts and unbelief? Encouragement. Right in the kind of the pivot point of the whole chapter, the author says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The word encouragement in the Greek is parakalete. It comes from two different words, kaleo, to call or invite or to speak, and para, next to, alongside someone. Encouragement is the words and deeds you speak when you're standing right next to someone with them. Some of you might be watching, I think there's a sports ball game on this afternoon sometime. Is that what you call it? I was at a pastor's gathering and and they said, get up, introduce yourself, and tell us who, who you predict to win the Super Bowl. And one pastor got up and said, I don't follow baseball very much, but I'll make a prediction. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Was that you, Steve? Steve Tolson, that's right. Go oh. Eagle, all right. But when your team is behind and struggling, do you turn to the fans next to you and start arguing with them about whether the head coach made a bad decision or which player is wrong? Or do you start cheering on behalf of your team to encourage them to win? I got to run just a few miles with a buddy who was running a 100-mile race. And in the middle of the night, about 70 miles in, when his legs were hurting and his stomach was cramping and things were going bad, did I say, well, you know, you know you, maybe you should have trained a little harder than you did, or have you drank enough electrolytes? Did I say that? No. I said, you got this man. Keep going. And when he crossed the finish line, the encouragement was worth it. When a friend comes to your home, it's like, I'm just in a, I'm just in a hard time, and you've listened to them, and you've empathized with them, you respond and say, you are strong enough. You're going to make it through this. Words of encouragement are powerful. And here's the thing that I know. The challenge of the Israelites in the desert when they were thirsty, that was not the last scary, difficult, potentially divisive circumstance that God's people would face. When the first audience, the first recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were being persecuted for their faith, that was not the last time God's people would need to face a scary, difficult, potentially divisive 
circumstance. As a matter of fact, we should assume that we are going to face, as individuals and as a body of Christ, that we are going to face scary. Like, when I say scary, what I mean is like, I'm really scared for how bad this could go. I'm really scared scary. Difficult, like, if it was easy, we would have solved it already. But it's difficult, so we don't know the solution. And potentially divisive, like... People break fellowship when things get too tough. The president of our denomination, Tammy Swanson-Dreheim, she's issued a call to prayer to the whole um, almost 900 churches in the ECC. And she says, ah, she sees some things on the horizon that are scary, difficult, potentially divisive issues. I'll just name one. It's not a surprise, but we know it. Um, questions about human sexuality and gender identity. And how does a church minister to people in this New world with new experiences that we're seeing. This is a scary, difficult, potentially divisive issue. So Tammy said, here's the first thing we need to do. We need to pray with one another for God's church, the house that God built to stay united in ministry through difficult times. She gave this great illustration. She was preaching from one of the stories in the gospel where Jesus and his disciples, they're in a boat and they're going across the sea and a storm comes up. And Jesus is just sleeping. But the disciples are freaking out. And they wake Jesus up and they're like, what's going on? What are you going to do? And they kind of fight with one another. And we could dig into the text. But what Tammy said was, you know what the disciples didn't do? They didn't say, let's break the boat in half and go our separate ways. <laughs> Encouragement. I think here's the message for the author of Hebrews. When it is so hard that you want to quit, when you can't imagine seeing eye to eye with the people around you, never give in to quarreling. Don't try to solve your problems by fighting over it. It will only harden your heart. Rather, demonstrate your faith by encouraging one another daily. I've got two thoughts for us to consider when we say, okay, so what are we going to do by this? If the author of Hebrews really believes encouragement is powerful enough to soften our potentially hardened hearts, what are we going to do about that? First, put in your reps. I watched a YouTube video about a guy who set a new world record for the most pull-ups in 24 hours. Over 4,000. <laughs> like, I, I hurt just saying that. How do you do that? I'll tell you how. You do one. And then the next day, you do two. And then the next day, if you're me, you take a break, because that was hard. <laughs> and then you do one again. And pretty soon you can do 10. And pretty soon you can imagine what it is to do 100. And if you keep doing that every day for long enough, apparently 4,000 is possible. If the author says encourage one another daily is powerful enough to soften a hard heart, then I think we got to start doing it daily. we got to start doing it when it's easy, when it's just one pull-up. Okay, I can do that. 
When it's just one pull-up, one day, in a simple circumstance where it's easy to encourage, so that when it gets hard, I don't know when it's going to get hard, but I do know it is going to get hard, it becomes the default. I can imagine turning towards a heart-softening encouragement, even in the most painful, scary, difficult circumstance I can imagine. And the second thought is this. If we're going to live our lives the way this author is challenging the church to do so, we need to be people who fix our thoughts on Jesus. Who don't give in to the cynical, to the grumpy, to the discontent voice that we know is inside us, but rather we have the health which is God with us, who is in us, strengthening us, so that we can be an encouragement that God calls us to be. And if we don't know for sure what that encouragement looks like, there's one place to look. God looked down at the house he built, called all creation and all humans, and he saw that we were tearing this thing apart. We were busting out walls and ripping up floor tiles. And God could have said, you know what? Just tear the house down, we'll try it again. But instead he said, I'm going to go down and I'm going to go into that house to be with my people. And I'm going to take the brokenness of that house on me so that they can live together in the house I designed for them. When we celebrate communion, that's exactly what we're celebrating. In just a little bit, Brad Wisdom's going to come up and lead us um, into a time of remembering that when God saw a problem too big for us to imagine... He didn't tear the house apart. He didn't throw in the towel. He came down to be with us and gave his life for us so that the power of the resurrection, a power greater than any force in all of history, might be a power we know we have literally in us. Would you pray with me? God, we confess there are problems bigger than we can imagine a solution for. And we even confess that sometimes when we see those problems, we lose hope. Maybe we even are tempted, we tempted to give up faith. God, I pray that the words you spoke through this letter to the Hebrews thousands of years ago would, would pierce to our hearts now. That a hardened heart will never get us anywhere, but rather the soft heart that turns towards you is the one and only reliable source of life. May we turn always to hear your voice, to receive your grace and forgiveness, and to live our lives by that precious grace. May it be so, we pray. Amen.